Hey, it's Chris Black. On this week's episode, I've asked Zach Herbert to join me. He's the CEO of a company called Foundation that creates the Bitcoin hardware wallet called Passport. And the reason I asked Zach to join me was because I wanted to have an in-depth conversation about the entire landscape of hardware wallets. Everything you need to consider, think about, things you might not have even thought about before, even if you bought a hardware wallet. I wanted to review it in one single podcast episode to give you a resource that you could check and come back to when you're thinking about buying a hardware wallet and you want to think about all these different things that might not have occurred to you before. This is going to be a great episode. Make sure you take some notes. Make sure you jot down every question you have. Hit me up on Twitter with them afterwards. I'll answer as many as I can. Before we get into it, bitrefill.com. I talk about it a lot because it is a great website. Let's say you're traveling internationally and you want to purchase an eSIM so you can roam around Europe if you're an American. Uh, you can do it without tying your identity to that eSIM card and you want to pay for it with Bitcoin. Come to bitrefill.com, click on eSIMs at the top here and you can choose the region you want to hit up. So let's say you're going to Europe. Okay, let's say one gig, seven days is enough for you. If not, you can get three gigs for 30 days, etc., etc. We'll start out with that small one. Add it to the cart and check out. Here you can enter your actual email address or you can enter any email address. If you enter an email address you have access to, you're gonna get a receipt, which might come in handy for you, might not care, but go ahead and put whatever you want there, continue the payment, choose the currency you wanna pay in, and then it's gonna give you the info. Send the Bitcoin, you get the eSIM info, scan that into your mobile phone, and off you go to Europe. Piece of cake, no KYC, no identity needs to be tied to it. Pay for it with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Enter promo code Chris Black if you want to get 10% back in Bitcoin rewards for your next purchase. You're going to have to create an account to do that. But if you want that discount, you got to pay the price. Bitrefill.com promo code Chris Black. I am here with Zach Herbert, the esteemed Zach Herbert, CEO of Foundation. Yeah, Foundation. Do you have any other fancy titles we need to know about? CEO, uh, founder? Co-founder, CEO. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Okay. And Foundation makes the Passport hardware wallet, which is one of my favorites, which was a sponsor of my podcast. And then, you know, times, to, times change, things shift. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll win you guys back. But well, uh, we can't be sponsoring during a, during an interview like this. That's we don't want true. In here. Yeah, that is true. So right now, nobody can say there's any little <laughs> hanky panky going on. Um, but no, I, I really do like the the passport. It has a lot of the characteristics of a hardware wallet that I look for. Um, what I wanted to do with you, Zach, is kind of. Give I, I would love this to be an hour where people can just listen and get all their questions in because I, I get a lot of the same questions and I'm sure you do too. Like as yeah. far as what's a good option for a hardware wallet? Do I need a hardware wallet? What should it do? Should I get rid of my ledger because of recover? Should I this or that or the other thing? So I think we can hit on so much stuff in a short time here. Um, what I'd like first, if possible, is to get I, I would like people to hear what your stances like where what your philosophy is because you've obviously developed a hardware wallet you you market and sell one what's your how would you define your philosophy when it comes to hardware wallets i think that um there has to be a practical balance between 
security, uh, usability, and openness. That's, I think, how I would, I would define our philosophical approach to hardware wallets. I think we could probably assess everything through the lens of those elements, uh, security, usability, and openness, right? Because usually it's um, maybe even you could define it as that trinity where you can only get like two of the three or you can strive for, you know, all three, but it can be more difficult. You know, we try to find that balance where we provide with Passport um, really great physical security against any kind of physical attacks. You know, we have a secure element, for example. I'm sure we can talk about what a secure element is because I think that's something that's really top of mind for people. Um, we try to provide the best usability we possibly can because we want everyone to be able to use a hardware wallet. We don't want it to be something that is um, only for the most hardcore people. And I think that's a continuous debate, especially within Bitcoin for some reason, which is, you know, how important is, is UX? And I would argue it's extremely important. Um, and then also openness, right? I think there's two prevailing models on the extremes in hardware wallets, uh, either closed source or open source, but there's a lot to unpack across that spectrum. And I really think it's a spectrum, right? Um, there's huge amounts of trade-offs you can make so we can unpack, you know, um, what is being open source been on the hardware side and, and everything like that. But, but we do everything as, as much as possible to be, um, FOSS, right. Free and open source software and, and hardware. Um, and we try to stick with that and use the right licenses. And we care a lot about that. Um, so yeah, so our approach generally is as open source as possible, as user-friendly as possible and as secure as possible. And that also means some physical security. And sometimes that means um, making small sacrifices in one area, you know, for another area. So, um, but I think, I think that's a good overview. Yeah. I like the way you put it with the three points and it's, yeah, it's I a just lot made like, up, by the way. <laughs> really? Cause I was assuming that was yeah. like your, your corporate mission or something. Cause that's really good. You, no. should, you should keep that. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of what it's missing. Like, because as with crypto, as with Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency, there's this usually a trilemma, right? Where you have these three defining characteristics. And then if you want to achieve any one of them, you need to trade off from the other one. So when you're dealing with right. Bitcoin, um, you've got decentralization and maybe you got like um, um, censorship resistance, you know? And like, if you want to move in one direction, sometimes you have to take away from another direction. Um, for instance, efficiency you know, of Bitcoin, it's, it's slower and it's dirtier and it's more expensive because it's more decentralized. If you wanted to make it more centralized, you could make it cheaper and faster. So when we're talking about hardware wallets and most tech really, but it's especially important with this tech because of the, the finality involved, right? Like with cryptocurrency, once you Absolutely. lose it, you lose it. <laughs> so security, yep. uh, usability and openness. And all yep. three of those things exist on a spectrum. So there's really no absolutes with any of them, right? There's and no sometimes such. Sometimes if you, if, if you try to go too far in one direction, you end up really compromising in another direction. So if you were to go as open source as possible, you wouldn't be able to use any chip, right? You would have to uh, essentially do things on paper or you'd have to, um, you'd have to use extremely old, slow performing, you know, chips in the device and have a giant thing. So there's so like you, you go all the way extreme, right. And, and you're going to make trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 
these are the kinds of things I feel like people who are new to the space don't even really fully understand, which is, and maybe it's a good place to start, which is the fact that these hardware wallets, most of them, if not all of them, mm-hmm. store, well, they generate and they store your seed phrase. Uh, and yes. your seed phrase is the key to all of your crypto. So you are, no matter what, I don't know, if, are there any exceptions where they don't store your seed at this point? I think everything on the market there pretty There are, okay. There's exceptions. Yeah, there's seed signers, the big one, right? Where um, it'll, it can generate a seed for you, but it specifically is designed not to store it. And you have to scan it in each time with the QR code scanner. So, so I think the functions you're describing, seed generation, seed storage, and then signing could theoretically all be separate, right? You could generate a seed offline by picking out seed words out of a hat. And then you could, um, you could, you know, uh, store them on, on metal or paper, and then you could use some kind of device in order to bring those words in and then sign this transaction. Then you can actually use another device to broadcast it. So maybe we're talking about four things, right? We're talking about seed generation, seed storage, signing a transaction, and then broadcasting that transaction to the Bitcoin network. And you're, you're, you could, you could theoretically, yeah, do four completely different uh, things. And, it, you know, I keep thinking like, this is a good place to start. This is a good place to start. But this is another good <laughs> place to start because I feel like a lot of people that are new to this space don't even realize that you can be even more secure. The hardware wallet itself is a trade-off, right? Because you're trading off security to a certain extent and trustlessness to a certain extent in exchange for usability. You're giving yourself mm-hmm. the purpose of a hardware wallet is to trade away a small amount of your security, a small amount of your um, trust in exchange for being able to use your cryptocurrency to be able to access it. If you didn't want to have that usability or access, there are ways to do the four things that Zach just mentioned uh, without a hardware wallet. And um, to a certain extent, without the internet and without, uh, well, I mean, for signing and broadcasting, you need the internet, but, um, yep. um, you know, to do it, you can do this without hardware wallet. So if you ever want to get that deep, uh, you can do it. Hardware wallets themselves are trade-offs. Do you agree with that? Totally. And maybe it would help too. We're going to find another place to start, but to, um, unpack the history a little bit. I mean, hardware wallets have only been around for about a decade. Um, seed words have only been around for about a decade. My first experience with Bitcoin, actually just about 10 years ago now, was not with a hardware wallet or seed words. It was using an app called Armory on um, one of my computers and then using a a laptop that I pulled the Wi-Fi card out of as an, as the air gapped offline computer. And there were no seed words. Your, your key was actually random, uh, like alphanumeric codes. And you could back that out in what was an early iteration of, you know, Shamir and split up your key and pr- you could print it out on pieces of paper. And then you have to write like a code on it so that you don't have to trust your printer. So all of that was before hardware wallets. And then you know, the Trezor device came out and um, they they came up with a concept for seed words to make them human readable and easier to back up. 
but it's all trade-offs. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, I, I know there's still Bitcoin developers like, uh, like Luke Dash Jr. who will say that they store their seat, th their keys in like, uh, encrypted somewhere, like the actual key for each Bitcoin address, not the master key. So there's so many ways you can do this. I just think that, you know, over the last decade or so, the industry has converged on the seed words in the hardware wallet, but it's, it's all a trade-off. I mean, you could decide that just to write some the words down on a piece of paper and just put them in a drawer and not look at them and not interact with them and not spend anything. In which case, I mean, it's cold storage, right? It, it's, it's mm -hmm. nothing to do with the device, but it's, it's cold storage is offline. And then whenever you want to spend them in the future, you can figure out how you want to, you know, bring that seed into a computer or device to, to sign a Bitcoin transaction on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, the development technology never stops because even if you were to do that, there's plenty of applications and plenty of um, apps uh, and, and even devices that you could use to monitor your balances to continue to. I mean, one of the best things about Bitcoin is uh, you can just keep on depositing into your wallet without ever having access to be able to send it. Right. So, you know, That's you cool. can have a, a basically a receive only uh, wallet, have it in a cold storage buried somewhere in the middle of uh, Africa or Antarctica or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. but, and just have access to the addresses to send into it. Um, and you yeah. don't need a hardware wallet for that. So it's important to note, like, you know, those four things, seed generation, seed storage, signing, and broadcasting your transactions, those are the things that you need a hardware wallet um, to do if you want a hardware wallet to, to do them. So um, maybe it's a good time to start to, well, first of all, where, did, where, are the, where does Passport fall in that spectrum? Like what does it prioritize and what, where, does it, where does it make trade-offs? And don't be afraid to, to bash your own product a little bit. Not bash, but, <laughs> but um, tell us where it's strong and where maybe some trade-offs are made where um, other wallets are even stronger. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm never afraid to, to bash our own products. And I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to establish some credibility as a newer entrant, you know, to the space over the last few years. Cause I think you often see, uh, companies launching new hardware wallets and they're too polished. They're too like a uh, pie in the sky, the most secure device, you know, uh, the coldest storage device, you know, like I could just list off, right? Like a hundred of these and it's ridiculous. So I think it's important that you know, when you, when you talk about your own products, right, you're, you're talking about the pros and, and the cons. So, um, let's start with the, the, uh, security side of things. So, uh, I think Passport is among the most secure devices on the market in the sense that it, you know, it uses a, a secure element in order to help store the keys, uh, in a way that's resistant to physical attacks. Uh, all a secure element is, is it's just the chip that's designed to be hard to crack into. And so we use the chip, uh, the same exact way cold card and Bitbox do, which is we use it for like its secure slots. So we store a piece of the key on there, a piece of the key in the MCU, which is like the general processor. And then when you open up Passport, you're entering your pin to unlock it. It combines those pieces back into your, your seed in real time. So if someone was to find your Passport and steal it from you, um, they'd have to take it to like a lab-based environment to try to, you know, get your keys out. They would have to, you know, rip it apart, uh, grind down the top layers of the 
secure element chip, shine lasers at it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that is a security model that a, a good number of hardware wallets are doing these days, which is awesome. Um, Trezor was the main holdout, right, of not wanting to use a secure element. And they did a huge 180 a couple of weeks ago with the re release of their, of their new device, the, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, something three. Um, but anyway, so, so that, that's one aspect of it that we use a secure element. Um, something safe we do that three. is actually safe, a safe three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that's unique to passport, I think in the space still is that we do something special for the, um, the seed generation, which is when you take, uh, entropy from different sources, which is basically like sources of randomness, you combine it, uh, and then you, you, you use it to essentially uh, have really good random numbers that go as an input into creating a seed phrase. Um, an example of having bad randomness is there was unfortunately a, a cold card user on Reddit a, a week or two ago who did dice rolls to generate his seed. And he only did like four dice rolls and his funds were stolen instantly because it has such low entropy, such bad sources of randomness that there's people out there who have scripts that are constantly monitoring for bad seed phrases, essentially. And, um, and sweeping funds that they find from that. So like, um, what we do with Passport is we have something called an avalanche noise source, which is a true random number generator that is purely made of common circuit board components like resistors and capacitors. So we're actually not relying solely on like black box, true random number generators that you find inside these chips, which is most of the uh, competition is doing. We have this really cool, like auditable open source, um, uh, component or set of components on the circuit board to, to create that entropy. So um, where we maybe fall short of competitors is we just have one secure element. We now are seeing cold card do two. We're seeing the new Keystone advertising three. I would say it's diminishing returns after one is my argument. You know, you get it into a lab and, you know, you can maybe get something out of it. Um, what are they trying to do? Are they like splitting your seed or your, your, Important information between the three. Exactly. You say, okay. say we can, yeah, I think for Keystone, one of them is just used for fingerprint. So I think it's actually still two, but yeah, we're, they're saying, well, two is better than one different vendors, right? We'll do one from microchip and one from Infineon. And then, you know, now also there, it, it makes it harder if a vendor is compromised or has a backdoor or something right. like that. So we just have one. I don't think we have plans really to do another one. Um, I just think I said, I think it's diminishing returns and adds cost and, and complexity to the device and the firmware, but it's, it's one area where I think the competition is doing some interesting stuff by, you know, adding more. Because really Bitcoiners over the past 10 years that we've had hardware wallets or whatever it is, mm. um, have, have gotten very, um, deep down the rabbit holes of what could go wrong. Right. Yes. So when Zach mentions like a vendor could get compromised. We're talking about all of these chips and the, a lot of the hardware wallets are made in factories in other countries, mm -hmm. you know, and they're made by private companies uh, that use proprietary technology. And it's absolutely possible for one of them to decide, you know what, we're going to put something into this chip that allows us to tap into the information when you plug in your hardware wallet and sends it back to us. We're very capable, you know, or, or somebody in a factory could just sit there and, and, and tweak your hardware wallet in a specific way um, that compromises it. Um, mm -hmm. 
these things sound crazy and they sound tinfoil hat, but these are things you have to think about because everything and a lot of things that we've seen over the past five years, like in crypto, were tinfoil hat conspiracies, right? And they, they actually happened, especially stuff with Ethereum and DeFi and all that. So uh, it's Absolutely. important to think about these things. And so I can see how it could be a selling point if um, a, a hardware wallet has two different secure elements from two different vendors, and you'd have to be able to crack both of them uh, mm -hmm. in order to retrieve the info. I, I see how it could be. I also see how it could be, you know, you have to think about the extra cost of that and what it's costing you as the, the end user, and is it worth it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's an important thing to call out. One other thing I wanted to ask you about before we get off of it too far um, was the dice mm -hmm. roll thing. Because I've always mm. been kind of fascinated by the random number um, generation that goes on when you're creating a seed phrase. And, and new users don't understand this either. So when a hardware wallet creates your seed phrase, it's not just picking numbers. Uh, it's not just picking words out of thin air. It's not just like, here's your words. Yep. Uh, you, as you know, it gives you 12 words or 24 words or something like that. And you write them down, you store them away, and you hope for the best, right? What it's actually doing is it's creating um, or it's generating random numbers and mm -hmm. generation of random numbers in technology, like with computers, with devices of all kinds, has always been a tricky thing because yeah. true randomness in tech, I mean, there's no such thing as absolute randomness in tech. Like maybe in the universe, you can make an argument for it, right? But when it comes to chips and when it comes to devices, there's always a ceiling on how random it can get. And right. the technology now does a good job of, of achieving levels of randomness that that exceed human comprehension, right? I guess that's one way of putting <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but how, like, but people do use yeah. dice. People do still generate their own random numbers and they still yeah. do sit there and, and some people just don't trust the tech. So they will sit there and, and they'll roll dice and there's a system yep. where you can do that and come up with um, your seed words. And New users also probably don't realize that there's a list of seed words, of possible seed words that you can use with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That is, um, how many words long? Do you remember? I think it's over a thousand. A thousand words. I think it's over, I think. I can't tell you the exact amount, but it's, it's a large uh, word list. It's BIP32, yeah. right? If you Google BIP32, was it BIP32? or I think I it's BIP32. Google BIP32. Yeah. If that's wrong, I'll put it on the bottom of the screen. Uh, and it'll, you'll find the list of possible words that could be in your seed phrase. Every seed phrase you generate for Bitcoin has either 12 or 24 or some other number of those words. Mm -hmm. um, those are predefined words. Okay, so your random number is going to determine which ones of those words you use in which order. So um, where, do you where do you feel like, do, do people need to be concerned about, like, should people still be rolling dice? Do people have a valid concern still? Or like, where do you fall on that? I think it's a very valid concern. I think this is the easiest way where if a hardware wallet was compromised, um, this is, this is the way to go to take your, your money. Uh, you don't even have to worry about leaking information out of the device, right? If the, fundamentally, when you go and you create the seed for the first time, uh, there was not significant, uh, or, or there wasn't enough entropy or randomness, right? And, uh, the seed you get is something that you know, someone could go and use a GPU and generate, you know, thousands of seed phrases or millions or whatever with bad entropy intentionally trying to see if it'll, 
you know, match up. And so I think that you have to be really careful because if you do it purely offline or purely with dice rolls, right, you have to know what you're doing. And this is why I, we could probably find the link to that Reddit user with cold card who lost, a, I think it was about half a Bitcoin in the last couple of weeks because he didn't know what he was doing and he only did a handful of dice rolls thinking that was sufficient. But really, you should be doing 50 to 100 dice rolls in order to get uh, enough entropy where, you know, um, where you can have a strong enough seed phrase. But um, great examples, like if you have a hardware wallet and you're only relying on the true random number generators in the chips on your device, right? So every secure element has a, it's called a TRNG. Every MCU has one. Usually I think they're, they use like heat and stuff like that as um, the source of randomness. If you're purely relying on that, I mean, that would be a great thing to backdoor. <laughs> you know, if you're like an intelligence agency working with like a chip company, obviously that would be catastrophic for so many things outside of um, even just Bitcoin or crypto. Uh, but I think it's completely valid that if you're really paranoid, you might want to generate the seed offline. Now, we don't have dice rolls in Passport because I think too many people make mistakes and don't understand it. They think that they're like a panacea, right? I would advocate for doing whatever technique you think is best, generating your seed completely offline and then bringing it into Passport, right? Importing it as a seed. I don't want to do any kind of security theater because if you do dice rolls on the hardware wallet, there is absolutely no way to know if the hardware wallet is actually incorporating that entropy. You, you just have to trust what it shows on the screen. So the only way you can verify what's on the hardware wallet is if you go spin up another device from another vendor that allows you to do dice rolls, or if you have like a, like a laptop that you trust and you have Linux on it and you run a command line utility and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that doing dice rolls and then entering in those rolls on a hardware wallet, if you don't in, in response to not trusting the hardware wallet, it doesn't make any sense unless you're going to validate it from another device. So just make it offline, bring it into your hardware wallet. Um, and if you're really paranoid, you know, I would, I would advocate for it, advocate for that. I think even easier than dice rolls is you, um, you print out the seed word list, you cut them all up and you pick them out, out of a hat. These sound like kind of crazy ideas. Like, well, that's, that's, that's <laughs> why I just want to say that like with passport, why I trust it to generate seeds for me, like personally, is because the circuit board is all open source, right? You can, you, you know what's on the board. The firmware is all open source. You see that it's using this avalanche noise source, right? This open source true random number generator. Uh, if you, you, you can, uh, the, the firmware is reproducible, meaning that um, you can build it from source. You can check the hashes match, you know, you can, anyone can do it. And so you have really high confidence that What's happening on Passport exactly matches up to like what's on the GitHub and what other people have looked at. And so that's really important. So that, that allows me to trust like our device. Also, it helps that we make it, but um, we also manufacture it in the USA, you know, and there's no like sketchy Chinese uh, assembler or anything like that. So like, I feel pretty confident that the firmware that's on the device matches up with what's online on GitHub. But that's a huge aspect of this as well, which is, um, Doing reproducible open source firmware is much harder than just open source, meaning that, you know, there should be a process um, instructions on GitHub. So anyone in the world running any kind of device can go build that firmware from source and you know, compile it essentially and make sure that it matches what you're seeing on the device. And not everyone does that. Um, 
and, is and and so that that's an aspect that helps add you know more trust and the openness uh, category. Is the secure element in the passport open source? Let's take a step back there because that's like a loaded question. <laughs> is any chip open source? Is any chip open source? No, no. So, and this is, this drives me, this like triggers me, right? Because you have companies claiming uh, like Trezor, right? And Tropic Square, their subsidiary that they're working wasn't on. Wasn't that a, supposed a to be an open source chip? Is, wasn't that the idea there? You could, you, could find my, you could find my interactions with them on Twitter. They, they say it, it's not. And I can talk about, I can unpack what is and what isn't, right? Um, or like Keystone claiming the first ever open source secure element firmware. What does that mean, right? Um, What's your beef with it? My beef is that no chip is open source right now. The only way that you can make a fully open source chip is if you make it at 130 nanometers on a specific foundry in the US um, that partnered with Google. Uh, it's called Skywater or the Skywater PDK, the process design kit. And then you can open source every aspect of the chip. Otherwise, you can never make an open source chip because as soon as you go through one of the foundries like TSMC or Samsung, you have to sign NDAs and you're using their PDK, which is their process design kit, whether you're using a seven nanometer, 16 nanometer, 28 nanometer, whatever chip process you're using, whatever modern chip process, you have to use their PDK. And that is guaranteeing that parts of your chip have to be closed source. So whenever Tropic Square ships their ultimate you know, open source secure element, it will not be fully open source. There will be parts of that chip that are total black box. Okay. And what they'll say is that those parts don't matter because they don't actually deal with the, um, the functions of the chip. What I would say is you have, if you looked at the chip on a diagram, there's parts of that diagram that are just black boxes. And so it, you can't make the claim that it's open source. Then if you use any kind of modern MCU, you'll have the seed signer guys, right? Go around saying, open source, open source. We're using Raspberry Pi Zero. There's no secure element. Or you'll have the Trezor guys going around saying, you know, before the Trezor uh, Keep 3, they'll go around saying, we, we don't want to have any closed source secure elements on the board. But their MCUs are also black boxes. You don't know what's inside the MCU or the processors for any of these devices. And they have, they're all, they're all made digitally. They're essentially, you, you, you make the chip in code and then you you kind of like compile it and have the foundry, you know, go and produce it. And there's, there's code in the chip that's like hard, hard coded into the chip. And it's all a black box. All of hardware is a black box. And so like, um, that's why I get triggered by the open source versus closed source, you know, secure element uh, debate. Okay. So with regard to the hardware, it sounds like the main mm -hmm. elements of every hardware wallet that uses a, a secure um, uh, chip is is that secure what's it called again the secure element uh the secure element yeah. chip the mcu is basically like the motherboard of the chip right that runs the software is that what that is the mcu is typically like um it's it's a processor you could think of it being like a cpu in your computer but much smaller and uses less power um and so uh, it's a microcontroller is another way of, of saying it, right? So it, it's like a mini CPU. Um, the reason they differentiate between like MCUs and secure elements is because 
a secure element is usually designed specifically for like security functions um, and is usually has way more protections against physical attacks. You can also buy security oriented MCUs. You can all you can have secure elements that don't execute code like what we use cold card Bitbox. You know, they don't actually execute code. They're used just for key storage. And then you can do what Trezor does and you have a secure element that runs a full operating system on it. Okay. So all so, complete mess of terminology. Yeah. Right. So your, your um, secure element stores your secure data, like your seed phrase, your private keys. Uh, your MCU is running the software, basically, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Good way to think and, about it. Okay. And it's, so that's running the, the, the interface and controls what you see and controls um, what happens with your device to a certain extent. Are there any other parts of the chip or of the device of, of these, you know, of the, of hardware wallets, I guess a passport we could start with, you know, that, sure. um, are of concern or are those the two main things that could be compromised? Well, there's the screen and, um, the, all screens have a little chip in them. So that's, that's always a potential concern. Um, it'd be really hard to do anything with the screen. Uh, even if the manufacturer was, um, it would have to be something so sophisticated, like the manufacturer would have to know that that screen is going to a hardware wallet company and know the exact like UI of the device and try to like trick you or something mm -hmm. like that. In the original Passport, our Founders Edition product, we actually used a screen that didn't have any chip in it. It was it was a black and black and white, you know, display, um, monochrome. We ended up moving towards a color IPS display because that's a that's a perfect example of a trade off between like. The security and the user experience, right? We we really want to go the color display route for the better usability, but now we have a, another chip in the display. Um, then there's also like the in, the interface, like how do you get data from the hardware wallet to the outside world? Typically, you have USB, or you'll have Bluetooth, or NFC, or camera, and we use a camera. So Passport does uh, QR codes, which is a pretty cool way of transmitting data, in what would be an air gapped way. Most hardware wallets uh, do USB data transmission, NFC, Bluetooth. So there's a lot of other chips that go into that device. I mean, our camera has a chip in it as well and is running code. So every time you have, uh, you know, uh, you add an NFC chip, you add a Bluetooth chip, you add a camera, which has a chip in it, you're adding, right, layers of uh, silicon, of black box, you know, code on there. We have a keypad controller, which is super simple, but it, it's still another chip, right? Um, and, and so you, you, you kind of have all of that. And then if, if some wallets also have a battery in them, so we have a battery in them, that's pretty dumb, which is good. But um, right. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but there's a lot to consider when, when designing these devices, right? Because you could go super hardcore where it's like barely usable, or you could go super user-friendly where the whole thing is like a black box filled with chips and code and everything from other you know vendors. So one of my favorite things about the passport and other devices that do it this way um, is the fact that you never have to connect it to your computer. You can use yeah. it completely. You can set it up and you can use yep. it completely air gapped because you are transmitting data from off from online to offline to your device through an SD card. You're signing transactions using the camera um, mm -hmm. on the device. So you can use it and never, ever, ever connect it to the internet. So does that type, as opposed to, you know, on the other side of that, you know, most people 
um, who are listening probably have experienced a ledger or a trezor or other devices where you actually have to plug them into your computer, which exposes them to, you know, to an, a hot device, right? Your, your computer. Um, theoretically, reducing the amount of space between, you know, the, the amount of um, uh, reducing, increasing the, the surface that's exposed to the internet. If you talk to somebody at Ledger or Trezor, they'll tell you it's inconsequential. But in reality, obviously, there's a big difference between <laughs> yeah. plugging in your device into your computer and never doing that. So do you think that that's, that, that air gap feature completely, uh, outside of physical attacks, um, mm -hmm. do you think that, th doesn't that completely negate the danger? Like it removes the danger from, for the user as far as, their device being compromised, obviously through the internet and through any other real means other than if somebody physically gets your device. I think it massively helps decrease the attack surface, which is kind of what you were saying. Um, it's not perfect. I'm sure you can come up with some very novel, clever ways of trying to leak data out. Um, how, if it's never how connected, you, how could you possibly leak data out? It has no Wi-Fi. Uh, there's, 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 there's one where you could do the chosen nonth attack. That's a fun one where you, uh, you get the user to sign enough transactions and the device chooses a nonce that shows up on chain. And after you sign a certain number of transactions, you're leaking this out on chain and an attacker can, you know, pick up your seed phrase from that. That's, that's why some devices have this anti-klepto feature. You may have heard like the Bitbox guys running around advertising that. That's a really clever one. So there are, there are attacks that you can do still. Um, I'm just not, I'm not clear on, I want to learn more about this. Like, why don't you, yeah, well, that particular I'm not, attack, I'm probably not the best person to like go super deep into this one. But the idea is when you sign a transaction, you could, you have to choose like a nonce on the hardware wallet and you could potentially choose ones like where you can almost like Morse code, like communicate out the seed words onto the actual blockchain. If you design the firmware in a very malicious way. But that's why having open source reproducible firmware is so important, because if you have that, okay. then so you're not going to be able to do that. But if the firmware was totally compromised, mm -hmm. you could sign transactions in a way and select nonces where if you're, you would theoretically be able to leak it out like on chain. Okay. I get it now. Yeah. And I just want to make sure yeah. it's clear because, so we're talking mm -hmm. about in this example, a air gap device has never touched mm -hmm. the internet. Um, you set it up offline, you keep it offline. Um, it has open source firmware. Um, but if, so if that firmware arrived in your device corrupted and you know what stuff can be open source, but still have bugs, it could still have yeah. back doors. You know, if there's yeah. one thing yeah. I learned with DeFi and solidity and this stuff, it's like, you can have the best auditors in the world, look at code and miss stuff especially if it's a really, really good developer who really knows how to hide something. So mm -hmm. there could be something in that firmware, um, like, like Zach is describing that, you know, manipulates the nonces or stuff like that on your transactions. Um, so it looks like everything's fine. It looks like you're, tra and you are, you're transmitting your transactions. The money's getting where it yep. needs to be. Your, your crypto is, seems safe on your wallet, but every time you send a transaction, the developer has made it so that you're you're um, sending a little clue, a little piece of data about your seed phrase. Uh, this is stuff you need to think about, and it's scary to think <laughs> about. Uh, cool. But you gotta hope that you're. The, that's why you need to trust the developer. So, 
and I said this when I was, you know, when you guys were a sponsor and I say about other developers too, it's like, you got to trust the developer to a certain extent. You, you don't need to, um, you don't need to be completely inside their head, right? But you, you got to get to a point where, you know, you have a sense of what their ethos is and what they stand for and what they're trying to do. You know, there's a plenty of wallets out there that are being sold by companies that I really can't get a grasp on. They might be in other countries. They have culture differences. There's, it's stuff to think about, you know, it's stuff to think about. So it's important to, to understand where your developer is coming from, what they have at stake, uh, and where you can reach them if, you, if shit goes bad. <laughs> like, I know where Zach lives. So, you know, if, if, if that fat passport screws me, I'm kidding. I have no idea where you live. Um, Hopefully <laughs> can figure it out easily, unfortunately. But um, you're you're totally you're totally right, and that's why um, of all criteria, the one that I think is most important is is the open source and re reproducible. Because sure, a very malicious development team could try to hide something in the code, could go to great lengths to do that. But outside of that, I mean. If it's not open source or you can't reproduce it, meaning that the, the code's like on GitHub, but you can't build it yourself and confirm that it matches what's running on the device. I mean, that thing could do, that hardware wallet could be doing anything, like absolutely anything. And that's my biggest criticism of like a ledger, for example, which is, and, and their open source roadmap now, where they say they're open sourcing as much as possible doesn't matter right if there's 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 still black boxes there's you still don't really know how it works and so they could be um they could be negligent they could have just made a mistake they could be malicious and you'd have no idea um and so that's that's like when when evaluating any hardware wallet purchase i would never purchase anything uh if it's not you know fully open source and then you could get into the security model. Maybe you don't want a secure element. You want to go with like the Trezor um, model T, which is their, you know, touchscreen one and it doesn't have a secure element. And, but you're okay with that because like Trezor is open source, right? You, you trust them as a company, you understand the trade-offs, you're going to use like a passphrase. That's fine. Good. You know, like fully respect that. But I, I just, I don't understand how um, any company could be in this hardware wallet industry or, or any wallet, even especially software wallets too, and um, and not be embracing open source at, at this point in time. So when you're when you're using a Trezor, you mentioned. Uh, well, I want to get back to the closed source thing in a, a second. Yeah, but when on. you're using yeah. a Trezor and you you've already set it up and you plug it in and and it just asks you to mm -hmm. enter your passcode, your PIN. It already knows your seed phrase, right? How how does it know your seed? How does it have your seed phrase if there's no secure element? So they're storing the seed phrase on the memory in the MCU. Okay. And it takes about less than $100 of hardware and about 15 minutes to pull that out. Because it's not on a secure element. Right. And, and so that's, that's probably why they added one for the the new device and when they refresh their flagship more expen expensive device next year i'm sure they'll also have one in there because they've been getting nonstop criticism for years for not having it what they tell their users to do instead 
is to use a passphrase in addition um, to the to the pin. But if you're using the model that is not a touchscreen, if you're using the whether the new one, you know, the Safe Three, or is it Keep Three? I keep um, the Safe Three is the new it. one. Okay, sorry. This, this, if you're using the Safe Three, or if you're using the old one, like the classic one, the mm -hmm. Treasure One, I think it was called, or something like that. Mm -hmm. You have to enter your passphrase in the computer, right? Which negates the whole point. So you have this really weird security model of not having a secure element, having a pin. You can pull the seat off in like 15 minutes with super cheap hardware through a process called voltage glitching the processor. And then they say use a passphrase, but for the majority of their users, they're entering the passphrase into the computer. It's like inexplicable, you know, so, to me. Well, but well, is it inexplicable? Because wasn't the original motivation with the device and with the the ethos of the developers, wasn't the original idea that if we put a secure element chip in here, it's not open source and they wanted to keep it open source? Wasn't that the original idea? So that well, was a trade-off, right? It was a, that is a perfect example of a trade-off that I think was, yes, you're right. I think it was a bad trade-off, but it was, but they probably thought it was a, a good bad trade-off trade maybe coming from a good place. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think maybe, you know, one of the ways to think about it is when they started the company 10 years ago when they had their first product, um, there probably wasn't a good secure element chip they could get without having to like sign tons of NDAs and stuff. Now there's more options, which may be why they incorporated this part, I think from Infineon in, in the new model that has the secure element. So maybe, maybe that's what it was. They wanted to make sure there were no black boxes in the code or anything like that. As I mentioned, Bitbox, Cold Card, and Foundation all use the same secure element for microchip. And, you know, we only use it for the key storage slot. So we're not using it for any kind of code execution or anything, you know, related to that. And, and so there's ways to mitigate it, but I agree. I think it came from a good place. I think it came from the very open source ethos, but I think it was a, you know, ultimately a, a bad, um, a bad trade-off and they really pushed their users towards passphrases, meaning, you know, you, you have some pa password that you enter on the device or sometimes on the computer, but it basically appends uh, an extra word to your seed phrase. That, that's right. a good way, I think, of explaining how it works. And then, the, you know, that way, if someone finds your seed backup or breaks into your device, uh, they still can't get your money without knowing your passphrase. So they encourage that. But I have a lot of criticism around that because I think most users, including myself for a while, didn't really understand that you also have to have good entropy in your passphrase. Otherwise, they could be trivially brute forced. And so... I think for years I had a treasure and I think the passphrase I used was like HODL, <laughs> you know, like that completely useless right. from a security perspective. I didn't know. Right. I mean, this was years ago. I just, I didn't, I didn't know or understand those concepts. And but so it does multiply. It's sort of, um, it's, it's multiplied by the entropy of your seed phrase, right? Because you need your seed phrase, uh, in order for that passphrase sure. to mean anything. Uh, yes. And also somebody has to know that you have a passphrase because they might not right. know that you, you have, have a plausible, passphrase. Yeah, plausible deniability component. You can have unlimited passphrases. You can, right. have, you can have some money on the seed without a passphrase. You could have some money on another passphrase and so on. But that's a whole other concept that hardware wallet users need to figure out. That's one of the biggest things for me, which is um, just trying to make like good default choices for the user as opposed to... Yeah. Um, 
just give opening up them up to this entire, you know, it takes something that's going to take hundreds of hours to learn and understand dice rolls, entropy, passphrase, uh, Bluetooth, USB, air gap, different attack. I mean, you just, you know, you go down this whole rabbit hole, which obviously so many of us have gone down. Um, but, uh, I, I really think all the, the companies in the space need to be trying to make like the best default choices. It's an amazing area of innovation because it's, it's so unique, the hardware wallet space in that there's so many different ways and so many different trade-offs that can be made. And each one of them is like mission critical, like changes something <laughs> radically about the, the model. It's unlike any other area of technology, right? It's almost, you know, it's, it's unlike anything else because the biggest thing is there's like, there's something for, there's a different trade-off. Almost every person in the space wants a different set of trade-offs, right? Like everybody wants this personalized model and you can't, as a, as a businessman, you can't, um, make a device that only three people are going to want, right? You would, maybe you would love to, and even a device that's perfect for you, you wouldn't yeah. sell enough of them to stay in business, right? So what? it's like, is that right? I mean, you have to, you as a businessman yeah. need to make sure you sell enough devices to make a, a little bit of money. I mean, it's like, so it's like you have to reach a mass audience. So the most secure uh, device possible doesn't, isn't, you know, you'd have to build that yourself. Um, you got to make those trade-offs in order to have a business. And that's the way. So it's unique in that regard is, you know, but there's so many trade-offs that can be made and are being made. Is that fair? That is fair. Um, I like, and I think that's one of the reasons why hardware wallets have mostly stagnated until recently because companies really just Trezor and Ledger and then to some extent cold card, right? They're making them for themselves and they're early adopter you know, ultra early adopters. And so things that might drive a normal person crazy or be really difficult to understand, like seed words, how you back them up, what they mean, how, you know, all that kind of stuff, how you keep them safe. My, I, th I personally think most people have tons of anxiety about that, you know, especially when it's your first interaction, you, you get this device out of the box and you, and the first thing it tells you to do is write down these words on a piece of paper. And you're like, I just bought a $200 device and now right. I have to write something down. Why? It's cool that this device is so secure, but like I have them on a piece of paper here in my, in my drawer. Like, well, yeah. so I feel like, um, I, I do feel like designing, uh, I, I like to think of it as like a lot of what we're doing, I wanted for myself. And even though I'm also an ultra early adopter, I think of myself as being uh, able to, um, I, I want something that has like an Apple quality user experience. And so the, it's like this, this balance and within our company, so many conversations and debates are like that. It's balancing all those trade-offs and trying to figure out how do you provide like that best possible user experience without completely destroying like the security, you know, um, or, or, um, even, even to like thinking about what happens if we're no longer around, I see companies now that are launching devices or services like a ledger recover, like blocks, new bit key, like this new rider hardware wallet that just came out where all of those seed backup services all depend on the company being in business. So as mm -hmm. soon as you go off the standards, right? If you go off the 12, the seed seed words as the standard and you start doing your own thing that relies on custodians or servers or, 
um, closed source apps or accessories. Um, what happens if you got a business in five years? Or what happens if the government shuts you down? Now all of a sudden, all your customers have backups that don't work. I mean, that is completely catastrophic. And so it's so much to balance when you're thinking about designing these products. And if you look at the seed backup or, or how you back up the hardware wallet, you will see already like over a dozen different ways that companies approach it, right? You have Trezor doing uh, seed words, but then also encouraging Shamir, meaning you have three, like a two of three, like three sets of seed words that you have to write down. Um, so they're, they're pushing that. You have Bitbox backing up to a micro SD card if you want, unencrypted. So anyone who gets the micro SD card can get your money. You have us doing in cold card doing encrypted micro SD backups where there's some kind of password or pin code on the SD card. So, you know, you have the ease of use without having to write down the seed words, but it's on digital media. You have Ledger with pushing their recover product, which sends it to three custodians and they ask for your KYC details to unlock it. You have companies doing NFC taps. You have others experimenting with social recovery where you're splitting up the seed and sending it to your friends and family. You know, you have a uh, block doing things that are very like server based using like your email and login and storing data on their server. You have multi-sig stuff as well, like uh, Casa un Unchained Block is how their service works. I mean, I mean, I'm just like rattling off, right? Just top, top of head. But I mean, you have so many different conflicting ways of doing this. And so if you're a consumer and you you're buying your first hardware wallet, you're going to be faced with so many different ways to just do the most simple thing, which is back it up. And then if you have a hardware wallet, like a ledger or a treasure, and you're looking to switch, you're going to be faced with potentially completely novel, you know, ways of doing it that are very different from what you've done before. And um, I think it's good because like, as a company, we want to be able to put forward like what we think is best, you know, in our products. But I think it could also be very confusing. And I think the most dangerous thing is as soon as you go make your own standard, that doesn't work if you're no longer there as a company. To me, that's like, like anytime we're talking about building out ways to make it easier to back up the device, we're thinking about what happens if government knocks on our door and like shuts us down. Yeah. Um. I mean, when you think I I about it a lot, no, I mean, when you yeah. go back to the, the uh, trilemma that you said before, security, usability, openness, it completely applies here. You know, when you think about Ledger Recover, um, yeah. which in case people don't know, like Zach said, is a system where you set up your Ledger the same way you always have, except now you have the option of your seed phrase getting encrypted and sharded and, and sent off to... Um, I think it's three different, two different parties or three different parties, um, custodians three. Um, yeah. of Ledger. So um, the thing with that is uh, what we quickly figured out, which Ledger really um, still doesn't really acknowledge fully um, to, yep. to in their marketing at least, is that your seed phrase in that case can be taken from you without you being involved because it's, uh, it's Ledger has a key, you have a key. And the custodian has a key, and you only need two keys in order to decrypt your uh, your shards. So the seed phrase can be taken and handed over to somebody else. And so what what Ledger has done there has completely sacrificed on um, security. Uh, they have already sacrificed on openness, all in favor of usability. Ledger is all about a hundred percent just moving you know into that corner of the of the trilemma. And just focusing on usability, 
and trading away security, openness, and in the process, like self-sovereignty and, and uh, trustlessness. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that because they want to sell more devices. They are, mm -hmm. they want to maximize profit. They're trying, they want to run a company that does very, very well, right? They probably want to exit one day and sell it to some big, you know, manufacturer or something like that, or Bill Gates or somebody, and then walk off and go buy an island somewhere and whatever. Uh, that's capitalism. That's the way that the world works. And normally, in most industries, that would be um, the respectable way of doing things, like try to maximize usability the same way that like an iPhone has or the same way that other... other um, technology manufacturers do it. The difference here is, you know, what are they trading away? They're trading away the most important parts of crypto, of Bitcoin, and of the reasons that we're here, you know, and they never, ever tell people that. That's the biggest problem. This is reflective of just the way the society uh, is starting to approach the space. You know, as more people come in, as more people um, sort of discover Bitcoin and discover cryptocurrency and move into the space, they are not coming in with the attitude that we have, right, about self-sovereignty and freedom money and all this stuff. They're coming in, you know, because they want to trade or because they want to mess around. And it's still going to be a small percentage of them that fall down the rabbit hole, I think, that we've fallen down. And the rest of them are there trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? And they're the market for Ledger Recover, you know, and they're the market for Coinbase and, you know, Coinbase custody and stuff like that. Um, this is why I get so nervous about, and now we got the, you know, people are going to be involved with ETFs and stuff like that and all these different ways of getting involved with, with Bitcoin. And I get concerned about this is going to be the majority. Like that, that the people who want to use Ledger Recover are going to be the majority. Like they're going to be looking at us like we're crazy people in a few years, like we're tinfoil hat crazy people. Um <laughs> because there's going they're going to be 90% of bitcoin holders. You know, so like how do you grapple with that? Like how do you yeah. We always say like yeah, we want to bring more people down the rabbit hole, but we got to be real. And Ledger's already figured it out and Trezor is there too. Like they get it. They want to attack the mass market. They're like screw the ideals of the space, screw the the culture. We just want to make money. I, I don't know how you battle that in the long term. We, well, it's one of the reasons I feel pretty fired up and motivated right now. <laughs> I like that. Um, because I, I do feel like, I do feel like we're at, we're approaching an inflection point. I, I think you laid it out really well. If the vast majority of individuals in the Bitcoin or crypto space, if they are using ETFs, I mean, then, then of course they're not having any custody, but if they're using services like Ledger Recover, where Ledger has the ability to, if they want to take their coins or work with the government to provide information about your holdings or seize your assets, um, then the vast majority of users are, are not using, you know, these tools non-custodially. And then you almost have like two completely different classes of users in the space. One that's interacting directly with it and um, one that's not. And I think for anyone who even cares about um, like uh, price appreciation, if, you, if you're part of the crowd that wants to use everything as an investment and wants just the you know, number go up, 
then you definitely want to take self-custody because you start to run into things like reapothecation and asset seizures and, you know, paper Bitcoin, right? And and all that kind of stuff if you're not, if everyone's not actually storing it themselves. So like we're work, what we're trying to do and, you know, we're working on new products as well um, now to launch uh, hope, sometime next year um, is to push the usability direction as far as possible without compromising on the core principles. And that's really hard. And so I think what's hard about that is you rightfully already said is like ledger recover is still always going to be easier to set up because you don't have to do anything, right? You, um, you, you just need to, uh, just upload a photo of you holding your driver's license or whatever, and then they take care of the rest. So it's hard. I think there's a huge edu education component and we're, you know, going to work on that as much as possible. But I think, you know, educators like yourself too, I think we need to, we like, I, as we approach this new bull market and as we have an order of magnitude more users pouring into the space, it could be like hundreds of millions of people this time, right? I mean, could end up with a billion crypto users by the end of 2026 or something like that. I mean, we all have a huge burden, I think, and responsibility of, of properly educating. And another example besides like the ledger recover and, um, you know, uh, backup thing is that we're starting to see hardware wallets at the market that don't have screens on them which I think is just so irresponsible. Um, there's a lot of these card-based ones like Arculus or whatever, which are super scammy and closed source. But Block is making their BitKey device without a screen, which means that you're fully trusting your mobile wallet or the software wallet. And so if the software, if you, if you say, I wanna, if I wanna send one Bitcoin to Chris and this is Chris's address, your phone shows you that address, but on the back end sends it to the, you know, ha a hacker or whatever. Um, you're just blind signing the transaction. But so people you see like the, these. They're, you they're see cheap, the, you know? I haven't seen how that device works. So it, it's Bluetooth to your mobile phone, to your device? Bluetooth or NFC is typically how, how they work. And then it's going to display the info there and you just are going to, what, fingerprint or something on the... BitKey, like fingerprint or some of them. Yeah, BitKey will be fingerprint. Arculus, you just tap, you know, to your phone. Okay. Um, and there's a few others like that. They don't have screens, so you have, you have no way of verifying the address details, right, or where the transaction is going. But the problem is, you, let's say we have a billion people come into the space in the next couple of years. How are they going to know that you actually should have a screen on the hardware wall, right? Companies they trust are telling them it's fine not to have a screen. So. I think this is something that's very worrisome to me, which is like every time a new user group comes in or like the next wave of users come in, they're almost all starting from a completely like, a, 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 they have zero knowledge about the, about the, the, the space. I mean, or, or really, supposed to work. is there any other area of technology that's targeting sort of the uneducated end user that requires so much sensitivity to this kind of stuff because it's almost like to the normal person you're you're telling them that they have to reverse the way that they think about technology because the normal normal person just thinks they want easier cheaper right. faster you know they they don't want to think mm -hmm. they just want to be able to use it and then you tell them no you got to take 
two steps back and use this little digital screen. We can't be have it be color because of this and that. And you need physical buttons because of this and that. And then they think we're just freaking nuts. We, unless we can find a way to tell that story better, it's we're going to lose. Because 99% of the world just wants easier, faster, cheaper, touch screens, you know, no screen. That's what people want. Is there any other area that, that has this problem or is it just crypto? I think there might be other areas that require learning in order to get up and running. One analogy I've heard before is like learning to drive a car. Like you have to put the hours in. You can't just get in for the first time. You'll drive through the wall or something. Um, but the thing about driving a car is that you have so much standardization. You have a steering wheel, you have a you have the two pedals, right? You have your your mirrors. Like if can you imagine if every car is completely different, like the way that you interact with it, the way you steer, the way you drive, it would be a total nightmare. I mean, no one would be able to learn anything. And so I think we're in like the early stages of uh, as an industry, almost like sta standardizing. You know, like Android and iOS are almost identical now. Um, I think maybe over the next decade, we'll probably converge around, I, I, I don't know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. I think there's a chance we converge around similar user experiences, but at least right now, we seem to be going the opposite direction. We seem to be like, like all completely branching out and, com and competing user experiences and form factors and best practices. And it, it's gonna, it's like a free for all. So I agree with you. People are expecting things to get more high tech more seamless and so i think the only real thing we can do is 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 uh try to make the products that are more high-tech more seamless that don't compromise on the principles and so that's that's like what we're trying to do so i think like i look at our passport device today and i'm really proud of where we've where we've gotten to because you know we're very highly rated we just did like a survey of our customer base i think we probably have the highest like net promoter score of any like hardware wallet, you know, in terms of like happy customers. We're like, if you're on Bitcoin talk with like the really hardcore people, everyone's recommending Passport now on the hardware wallet threads, which is amazing to see. So like we've we've been able to make something that's a great trade-off for, for more hardcore Bitcoiners, but that's not going to be the device that makes people choose us over Ledger at the like the mass market scale. And so everything we're going to be doing now over the next, you know, coming months and so on is to try to... Uh, bring stuff to market that um, will make people choose us and then where we don't compromise on those those principles. That's because you sponsored this podcast, by the way. That's why Bitcoin Clock Club's in. I'm just saying, so you're aware. I love uh, that website, by the way. They're, they're savage on there. Yeah, Bitcoin Talk is, is old school, man. Yeah. Going back to Satoshi yeah. times. Uh, if you ever yeah. want to get deep into Bitcoin, just check out Bitcoin Talk. You don't have to mm -hmm. post or register. You can just read that stuff and you can see where the real brains live. Um, yep. Let me put you on the spot um, mm. with a question. Are there any features <laughs> of Passport that you don't use that don't fit your, as a power user, that don't fit your own security model? Um, but that you recommend that maybe somebody who's not as familiar with the tech uses. So one that we added that I haven't really made use of is um, we have like a, we call it, I think we call it key manager, where we allow you to have like BIP85 seeds, which are you can use your master seed to create 
uh, child seeds and, and you, or even like a Noster key. And that all stems from your main seed that you back up. Mm -hmm. Um, that one is an awesome feature. We had, that was our top requested feature for like a year and we added it a few months ago, um, earlier this year. So I actually don't really use it personally. Um, but I probably should. For security um, reasons cool. or for just because it doesn't yeah. fit with what you're trying to do? Just okay. because I, I never really felt the need for it. But um, if you were to, for example, spin up a new, you're trying out a new software wallet on your phone. Um, the first thing I ask you to do is, you know, uh, generate or, or enter in a 12 word seed, you know, because like people store these seeds everywhere on mobile wallets. They'll store them in their password managers and stuff. You can actually just open up Passport, create a new child seed, and then type those 12 words into your phone or scan the QR code if the app supports it, which is so cool. So that way you only have to back up one seed, like the one seed to rule them all, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And then Passport becomes more of like a key manager as opposed to just like a like a hardware wallet. That is a cool feature. Um, what my my really question cool was more yeah. about are there, because Passport, every hardware wallet makes trade-offs, right? So mm -hmm. what I was at, what I was going for, Okay. is um are there trade-offs that passport has made that you personally don't oh, I see. put into your security model sounds like the answer is no but i figured i would ask you anyway i think the answer is no because i kind of we, we designed it almost for me okay that's fair <laughs> like i always i always think of myself as like the like the target the target user for our products so um uh no i i think it makes a really good set of, of trade-offs you know, we definitely have things people have been asking for that we don't integrate. I'll give you some examples. Um, duress pins is something a lot of people want, where if you're under duress, you type in a different pin and it either shows like a different wallet completely or it like wipes the device. So we don't have that. Um, another one is... Um, Why? Why do you have rolls. it? If everybody wants it. You just haven't had so, time? Lop, Lop has written some good stuff about this, you know, Jameson Lop. Mm -hmm. um, if you're actually under duress and you have a sophisticated attacker, let's say holding a gun to your head, and they know that your passport has the ability to have a duress pin, you may end up finding yourself in even more danger. Let's say you don't use it. And they, and they, and they accuse you of entering your duress pin in instead of the real one. Hmm. I mean, you get yourself killed or something over that. Um, I'd rather use a passphrase for more plausible deniability instead of having a documented feature for passport called the duress pin that a sophisticated attacker might think that someone who's higher net worth would be using. So I think th there's a lot of very difficult incentives and we argue like hell about that, you know, within the company. But that's the space an example is so insane. This goes back to what I was saying yeah. before. What other yeah. area of technology that markets to complete noobs has to think about that yeah. kind of shit? Like, I mean, it's it's you no, know, I as think a, you're right. Like none of none of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, none even you you said cars, but cars go run the gamut. Like people will. There's people that drive Teslas with no keys and yep. no nothing, and people that drive you know uh, old trucks with real keys and turn down the windows. Yeah, like everybody want something different but that's different like you're in this case you're talking about as a manufacturer everybody all your customers want this thing and you're like you know it's like you it might get you killed <laughs> because that, 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 that is a perfect way of summarizing that because <laughs> you're right we have so many requests for it 
or dice rolls. We have a lot of requests for dice rolls. I'm like, you're just going to screw yourself. Like, I'm, <laughs> like, I don't want to put, I don't want to put it in. Like, you're just going to, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot with this feature. Our early adopter, more hardcore customers are going to use it correctly. And then you're going to have new people who come in and they're going to think they know how to use it and they're going to make some mistake and then they're going to lose their money. And that's actually something that really differentiates the space from any uh, anything else, which is if we screw up, like, and our users lose money, like that is the right. The that's worst the first thing I said on this podcast. Yeah, like finality. Yes, <laughs> yes. Once it's it, gone, it's, it's gone. Honestly, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I'll go back to that example about Cold Card on Reddit from the last couple of weeks, where there was a version of Cold Card firmware that warned you if you did not do enough dice rolls. It gave you a warning, but it let you continue and make the seed anyway. They have since updated the firmware where it does not let you proceed unless you do a certain number of dice rolls, but it still doesn't stop you from rolling, like entering one, 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 one in for 50 dice uh, rolls, right? So like, you're, at least I don't think it does. Maybe maybe they did some kind of thing to check, right? I'm not sure, but um, the guy lost money. If if one of our users came on came on to our you know, uh, telegram chat and said, I just lost like a Bitcoin. I would be like depressed over it, you know, um, yeah. not to mention potential like legal ramifications. If we, if we screwed something up right on our end. Um, so it's terrifying because every single thing you do, even something as benign as saying, well, 30% of our customer base wants a duress pin feature. So we have to think about all the cascading effects of adding that in. Yeah. It's, I mean, with, with, it's kind of similar to, you know, if people listening have dealt with, with apps on Ethereum that are immutable, like the ones that actually get deployed that really can't be stopped, which is you're capable of doing. You can launch code on Ethereum that's going to do yep. a certain thing and nobody can ever stop it. There's no key to stop it. And nobody can ever fix a bug either. Right. So it's, mm -hmm. it's the same to me. It's like the same level of balls you have to have where. You know, you're going to deploy that code. People are going to plow tens of millions into it because people aren't thinking. People are just, they, they think if it's on the market, it must be okay, right? And so, you know, then there's a bug and, and all the money's lost. And you're like, well, yeah, I tried to warn you. There might be risks. Uh, hardware wallet's kind of similar in a way, right? Where you, you produce it, you manufacture it, you feel good about it. You've had it audited, you've had it tested. But until it's in the market, and until there's money at stake uh, and until it's known about and until people want to attack it, right? Until there's actually enough people out there with it that want to attack it, you don't know for sure that it's really secure. It has to be battle tested, right? In order to be 100% sure. We've seen, I guess, mostly in the software wallets, but I think hardware wallets too, where there's been cases where there's been bugs, where there's been problems, you know, where seeds, um, I think trust wallet. Was Trust Wallet one? Um, there was other ones where like the the random numbers weren't good or always entropy. Yeah, right, right. And so um, that would never have been discovered if nobody wanted to attack it. Right when they first launched it, it probably looked fine. So it's the same level of balls you have to have to put one of these things on the market. You can never and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I, you can never put a device out knowing absolutely for sure that it's going to work as intended until you get enough people using it, you know, like 
Am I crazy? No, I see you crazy. cringing, oh. and I see you making faces, I'm but I'm not sure why. I'm cringing because you're right, and because um, <laughs> and because there's this idea I think with hardware wallets and, and credibility, uh, where like the longer you're in market, the more credibility you have. Right. So if you if you have a hard, and that's so different from other industries, um, or not all other industries, but. You know, let's say, um, let's just pull a random company out of thin air. Um, a framework makes these cool laptops that are more repairable. They're like a very new company. I don't say, well, I'm not going to buy a framework because I don't trust them yet. I, I will only use like a ThinkPad or a MacBook. It's like, you no, know, a lot of people bought them because they're a cool new laptop company and the people like their design and the initial reviews were good. Mm-hmm. That is not the case at all in hardware wallet world, right? Like if you're right. buying a first generation device from a new company, there's a lot of risk associated with that. And so like when I think about us, I, you know, we're, we're three and a half years old now. We have way more credibility now than we did uh, when we first started in 2020. There's a huge like challenge of starting a new um Hardware wallet company. For some reason, I feel like it's not exactly the same in software wallets, though it probably should be. Um, and that's one of the reasons where you can kind of uh, add instant credibility in the beginning is by open sourcing everything. And I think right. that's where um, another way open source can really help for new entrants to say, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Um, and, you know, ex- experts can look at it. We've had some people look at it. We've paid them to look at it. Here is their, the reports that they gave us, right? You could, we're one of the few companies that actually published like a security audit. Most of these companies doing security audits do it on their closed source code and then like don't publish the audit, which is inexplicable, you know, to me. Um, But you see where I'm going, right? Like it's um, open source is a way to jumpstart it. But the one, the, the company that has the most credibility right now is Ledger, I think. And, and they have been here since the beginning and they are not open source and as they introduce new offerings like recover i think they burn credibility but they still have a decade of credibility so for you know that's what you get for being the the market leader um and that's what aggravates me the most about their marketing of ledger recover it's Mm -hmm. not that look i get it that there's going to be products that target the noob audience, the audience that doesn't care about decentralization. I get it. We've mm-hmm. seen it over and over. But the difference here, and they've acknowledged this to a certain extent, is that they're not explaining the trade-offs to those noobs. They're not telling yeah. the noobs that by using Ledger Recover, their seed phrase can be extracted without their involvement. They're not telling them that. you know. And they're, they're trying to... Um, you know, just wave their hands and say, oh, yeah, that's true, but it's not a big deal and it's really hard to do. And it's, you know, this, that, and the other. And plus, like, this is totally legal. Governments aren't going to, you know, uh, there's not going to be a court order, blah, blah. It's not about hypotheticals. It's about what's possible. And they are not marketing it in the right way. And it's, I have the same problem with a lot of crypto, right? In, in yeah. crypto, um, crypto and De- DeFi and, and all these different blockchains that are around, zero of them, or almost zero of them, 
do an adequate job of being forthright and telling end users, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And what you don't know is this, you know, and telling them because end users that are new to the space just don't even know the questions to ask, right? Like, so Ledger is using the credibility that's been given to it by users like us, you know, because, you know, for the past 10 years or whatever, uh, you know, they've been a go-to for a lot of different um, people of different experience levels in the space who have then referred other people and other people and other people. But now they're using that credibility that they gained through us. They're using it now to take advantage of new users. And I find that disconcerting. You know, can you combine that with the closed source nature of it and, you know, the sort of capitalistic um, profit over principles kind of um, take on things? I think that mm -hmm. they're becoming a questionable actor in the space, in my opinion. There, I fully agree with you. And their ledger recover architecture is actually really bad because they encrypt all the shards with a shared key that's in every single ledger device. So they could have done an architecture. We were talking about this within the team when it was first published. Like, like if let's say we wanted to do something similar to ledger recover, how I would do it is a, I don't think it would be linked to your KYC details. B, I would probably have some kind of password or um, some, some, some piece of data inputted by the user to at least encrypt the shards so that, um, so that the company storing them can't see them and like Ledger has no way of seeing them. That's like not what's happening. Everything is being encrypted by a key Ledger holds and then it's going to the companies. So I don't think that custodians can see them, but Ledger can theoretically see everything and every, all the transfers go through Ledger too. Because um, they want to make a dummy proof. They, they decided around yeah. a, a table uh, in a boardroom, we're going to make this product that removes all responsibility from the end user. Like they can't do anything to screw this up. Like we're going to make it so they can't, they could drop right. dead and still have access to their crypto. But That's what they want. An example, what I would do though, I would probably say like, if I want to do something that user friendly, let's say even it was with the KYC details, I would put some key or something in like the iCloud keychain or Android equivalent for the Ledger app so that there's something that can never really be lost, but that Ledger doesn't have access to that will then decrypt like the shards. Like I would add some, like there's ways to do it. Like within our Envoy app, we actually have something that is very user-friendly for onboarding. So in our Envoy app, which is like the mobile companion app to Passport, we have something called Magic Backup where you can get set up and running with a hot wallet, you know, where the key is stored on your phone. Um, and like, you could be up and running in like 60 seconds without backing anything up. And what we do is we store some data in iCloud Keychain, which is all end-to-end -end encrypted, supposedly, if you trust Apple, it's all end-to-end -end encrypted. And then we um, make backups of the state of your software wallet, um, but we encrypt the backup with that 
piece of information stored on an iCloud keychain. So we have stuff in our server that we can't see. We collect no email, no password, and we have some stuff stored in iCloud keychain or Android auto backup. We all think that's a great example of setting up a system that's easy to use. You get your setup without writing down any seed words. Um, but there's, we don't collect any data and then it's almost impossible for you to lose it as long as, as you still have a way to get back into your iCloud or Google account. But Ledger has not done that. They've gone that step further, right? Where it's fully in their hands. Like you said, in, in an effort to make it kind of like idiot proof. But you can make very minor trade-offs that don't impact the overall user experience and still do something similar. So that's where I take issue to it, where you, if you put enough effort and, and work into it, you can do something with that level of user experience or almost that level of user experience. As soon as you go into things like collecting KYC details, having a shared key, it becomes more than bad architecture. It becomes, um, you're not sharing the same ethos of the industry. I think that's what really triggers me. But they it's, don't care um, anymore. They've, they've made that I know. clear. Like, I mean, they I know. just I know. are chasing profit yeah. now. So yeah. if you're just chasing sure. profit, you want to have the simplest to use product possible. Uh, mm -hmm. Screw the ethos. We want to make money. Right. We want to go public one day. We want to be rich. Yeah. And that's clearly, I mean, it's clearly what's going on here. And mm -hmm. so with that being said, that's that they're doing a great job at that. You know, I think that they are positioning themselves to be the leader of the, you know, Bitcoin for the rest of the world kind of thing where it's like, who cares about right. the ethos of it? Leave the decentralization to this 1% of people who actually give a crap and you to just hold your Bitcoin and you don't have to worry about losing it. That's what they're going for. Uh, they've made that decision. It's over, right? So it's like, Godspeed. Just market it properly. Market it accurately because right. there's a reason that disclaimers exist. There's a reason that you go to you know certain websites and you, you see they list the risks of things um, mm -hmm. because they're forced to, you know? And it's like, because nobody willingly wants to do that. Trezor, uh, Ledger has no... Like the only thing it would do is scare people off if they put on their ledger recover. By the way, uh, if we get a court order, we can supply all your crypto to the court, to a government. If they put that on their ledger recover site, nobody would freaking use it. They'd be like, what, what? So they're just not being honest. You know, they're selling a product. They're not being honest. We're, we're almost out of time. Um, I have two more things I want to ask you. And then if you have anything else, um, feel free. But as far as... Um, Open source, closed source. Ledger yeah. clearly is is closed source uh, for the most part. Critical parts are closed source. Are there other hardware wallets out there that are closed source to that extent? Definitely. Um, mostly the newer entrants are like the China-based entrants. Like I mentioned, there's that Arculus and there's some others like that. There's that new one that did some crowdfunding in the last couple of years. Um, Shoot, it's like a large touchscreen one, uh, Engrave. That that one's complete, you know, black box, at least last time I looked at it. Um, so there's there's some that are just completely closed source. To Ledger's credit, by the way, um, their Ledger Live app is open source and the apps that run on Ledger are open source. So it's, it's really the Bolos operating system that's closed source. So even I'll give them credit, there are, hardware wallets that are more closed source than ledger like without a doubt 
Um, okay. Ledger does have a lot of open source stuff on their GitHub. It's just that the core inner workings of the hardware wallet are closed source, the, the actual operating system. And anybody um, who's gotten this far in the podcast clearly should. <laughs> I think that if you're here now listening to this, you probably care about that. You should yeah. not use a closed source hardware wallet under any no. circumstances. The only but, thing going for Ledger is the fact that they've been around for a while. They've sort of proven themselves. But when it comes to new companies like this Engrave or these other ones that are coming out of China that are closed source, you just should absolutely not use them. Uh, you absolutely should not use them because you don't know yeah. what they're programmed to do. And neither does anybody outside of the, their team. They haven't been audited. Um, or if they have, they, they had, I'm sure it hasn't been released. Um, it's not safe to use something that you don't understand what it does when you're trusting your life savings to it, period. You know, so you want something that's been third party audited. I'm talking, and when I say it hasn't been audited, I'm sure they've hired people to look at it, but I'm talking about people that don't have a vested interest from the outside, looking at the code, reading it on GitHub, explaining to you what it does. Um, they don't have that. So you can't use something that is closed source from a new company. You just can't. You don't want to be the guinea pig. Let me, let me add something to that, though. In my opinion, worse than that are companies that claim to be open source but are not. And so I'll, I'll give a great example. Keystone, not the new Keystone 3, because no one's seen the code for that yet, and they claim to be different for this generation. But the previous generation Keystones um, claim to be open source claim to have the first ever open source secure element firmware. Okay. Their hardware designs not available. There's pieces of the schematic missing and they admit to that in their GitHub repo. Multi gigabyte Android based operating system, binary blob, no source code available for it. You're allowed to email them to ask for like an NDA and then they send you some of it, but not all of it. The, the compiling software used to compile the code not open source. So if you can't trust the compiler, it's like a specific like ARM compiler thing that's like proprietary. And um, there's, there's, I could go on, but I don't need to go too deep into it. But my point is that they'll, they'll claim to be open source, but you, you actually go into the GitHub and you're like, wait a minute, some of the hardware is not open source. I don't even know the vendor who makes the secure element. They won't even list it. So like some Chinese company making a chip for them. Who knows what it does? Operating system is a multi-gigabyte blob. How the hell can they put on their website that they're open source? So they're just and, lying. And so to me, that actually, that triggers me more than the company like Engrave or something that's just like, we're not open source. Trust us. I'd, I'd rather have, like you said about, and I know you've called out so many projects on, on Twitter, right? And, and other places saying like, be honest about the trade-offs. Right. That's a perfect example. Yeah. I'd rather you be honest about the trade-offs and be closed source and say, trust us. This is why, as opposed to trying to deceive your customer base about being open source when you're not and using it for a marketing term, which dilutes the, the definition, right. And ends up impacting the entire industry in, in a negative way. So just to make sure I understand when I go on Keystone's yeah. website, which is K E Y S T dot. A, uh, o -N -E. Keystone with yeah. a, a dot between the T and the O. And I see it says fully open source, open source pioneer, um, full 
open source, public transparency. All of our code, including both hardware and software, is open source, allowing everyone to review and verify it. Is that a total lie? So they are probably talking about their new Keystone 3 device, which is yet to launch. If you go into the blog for that device, there's actually a blog post explaining that they have a roadmap of slowly releasing the open source code over time. So that's supposedly, if you trust their claims, everything will be open for that device, but it will be a slow release okay. for whatever reason. Okay. If you look back to the previous product, the previous generation of Keystone, that's the one where you go on the GitHub and you cannot find everything and you run into all these discrepancies. I don't know if that's still on the website, um, okay. but that's the one where you'll find claims like the first open source, fully open source secure element firmware, for example. Gotcha. Um, final thing I wanted to ask you was the idea. Are you still good? You still have a minute? Yeah, I'm okay. I got okay. It. I'm okay. Uh, I know we're over. Yeah. Um, I just, I'll just be late to my internal meeting. It's fine. Oh, sorry about that. No, um, yeah. Bitcoin only wallets versus multi-coin wallets. Mm. Can you just talk me through, and I know this probably would take more time than we have, but I mean, explain to me why you decided to make Passport Bitcoin only. And if you think it's riskier to use a, a wallet that supports multiple coins. So we made Passport for, for the Bitcoiner, right? And so we didn't think too much about adding support for other coins. Um, like I said, I like to think of myself as like a target customer for our products. And it's what I was interested in. I think there's definitely a valid argument about you have more coins supported and you have a larger attack surface, without a doubt, especially the way that most hardware wallets, and this is getting a little technical, but the way most hardware wallets work on the back end is that they'll use a master seed. And then as you know, each coin has a different derivation path from the same master seed. So you run into some interesting issues where if you don't do a good enough job um, with the firmware on the device, you could have say, a Litecoin wallet, say it's Litecoin, but like use the same derivation path as the Bitcoin that you're holding and like steal your Bitcoin. We've seen issues with this actually with testnet Bitcoin and regular Bitcoin on the same device where they, where you could trick a user into signing a testnet Bitcoin transaction that actually spends their real Bitcoin. So. I'll pause there and I'll say that like anytime you're adding more code to a hardware wallet, you're increasing the attack surface. And specifically, if you're doing this thing that I believe this is how Ledger does it on their hard hardware, where you have the master seed and then each coin or app that you add has a different derivation path. This is why Ledger or one of the reasons why the Ledger apps ecosystem is walled guarding, right? Ledger has to review every app on their device. Because one of the first things they're probably checking is making sure that it's not using like the same derivation path as your Bitcoin wallet to try to steal your money. So they have to put each app through a security review. And it's really hard to sideload apps. You have to be like a, you have to say that you have to go into like developer mode, right? You don't want to mistakenly, you don't want to trick a user into sideloading an app and then having all their money stolen. They think they're installing an app for, I don't know, 
Solana, if that's still a thing. And, um, and really it's like spending their Bitcoin, right? So that is an example of why I think, yes, supporting more coins can lead to security issues. What I would say is that I could probably spell an architecture right now that would allow you to have way more hardened security between apps on a device, right? Like you don't have to give each app the same key. You could, you could give each app its own child key that's completely sandboxed from the master key, for, for example. So that's a, that, so I, so I do think that like overall, yes, more coins, more attack surface, but there's a lot of nuance there that if you want to actually do a really good architecture, you probably could. I don't mm. think ledgers is very good. You're teasing a future product. <laughs> no, but I, I, um, I'm a big believer in like, uh, people should be able to do whatever they want on their devices. I think one of the things that ledger hasn't cracked is how do you allow people to install apps on a ledger without needing to get permission from ledger and that I am teasing a future product. Mm. Do anything they want <laughs> on their devices, except for messed up dice rolls, right? <laughs> Yeah, the so, dice roll. <laughs> we need a little bit of protection. Yeah. Um, well, listen, <laughs> I think like this that. has been a great chat. I think that people are going to get a lot of use out of this. Um, so I appreciate you spending all this time. Anything we missed? Final words? I think we covered so much. Any final advice to somebody who's still in the market and listen to this and is just trying to figure out what to buy? If anyone is still listening, um, <laughs> obviously, I mean, I would, I would, I would recommend our passport uh, if you're looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet. But um, if you're looking for something that does more than just Bitcoin, I, I still, I, I do respect like the Bitbox guys have done a great job with the open source side of things still and coming up with a good architecture. Trezor, I probably wouldn't recommend anymore, but um, at least their stuff is is pretty open source, and you know they uh, they do a lot better than Ledger. So um, there's that aspect, and then otherwise, I would just say you know. As a customer in the space, um, just really just try to support the, the the companies that are you know embracing the open source ethos and the ethos that's really protecting your privacy, um, and and you know all, as a as a customer of all these companies, like you have a lot of power, right? Like if if everyone stopped buying Ledger tomorrow, they would have to pivot, right? And they'd have to figure out how to change their how to change their business model here, and so. You know, as the early adopters, as the people that are recommending hardware wallets and other, you know, apps and, and tools to their friends and family, like you have a lot of power and influence, probably more than you think. And I mean, we listen to our customers, right? Um, so I think I'll leave it there. You know, just uh, if I could summarize all of it into one thing, it's that it's that importance of, of uh, open source. Zach, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you. And Chris, great to be here.